Well, good morning. Still me. Haven't moved, but uh, glad to be here for this part of the service. Uh, this part's more fun than the last part, which was fun, but uh, I do like to... Uh, to, I do like Ephesians 2 a lot, and that is what we are going to be reading and uh, meditating on this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is going to be another one of those sections that I'm going to read the whole section, but I'm going to focus attention on the first seven verses. Next week, we'll come back and read the whole passage again and focus on the last three verses. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open that up or to pull it up on your phone or whatever device you have or just look at the screens and uh, follow along as I read from Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Father, it is your work in our lives to bring us to salvation, to bring us to new life. We pray that you would show that to us clearly through your word this morning by your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever made in your life a bad decision? Raise your hand. No, don't raise your hand. Uh, We've all made bad decisions. We've all made bad decisions. Uh, Now, have you ever made a bad decision that has literally, not figuratively, literally followed you around after you made it? We've all made bad decisions that figuratively follow us around. We feel guilty. We feel shame. You know, those kinds of things. But what about a literal bad decision. Well, my father would tell me that all tattoos are bad decisions that follow you around. I'm not going to say that, but I am going to say that some tattoos are bad decisions that will literally follow you around. Take, as an example, a man from Ohio who went through a very, very dark and a very, very angry period of hatred after his father, who was an alcoholic, took his own life. This man, as a teenager, seethed with rage. He was extraordinarily angry, and not knowing exactly where to settle all of this anger, he settled his anger upon black and brown people. So much so that as a late teenager, this man had tattooed on his back 
taking up almost the entirety of his back between his shoulder blades all the way down to the small of his back, a hooded Ku Klux Klansman standing in front of a burning cross. That was on his back. And at the time that he got that tattoo, it signified who he was on the inside. An angry young man filled with hate toward his black neighbors. And there it stood, a permanent reminder of his hate. But time went by, and time always does go by. And as time went by, this teenager grew up a little bit, and this teenager ended up getting married, and he and his wife wanted to have children, and they tried to have children, but tragically they discovered that they could not. And so they went through the adoption process, and as they went through the adoption process, lo and behold, the first child that became available to them The child that entered their family as their son was a young African-American boy from Florida. They brought him into their home and he became their child. But this tattoo was still on his back, this permanent reminder of his anger and his rage. And it stood in absolute and complete contrast to what he was feeling toward his new son. This love and joy that this man had of being a father. But it was there, and it was permanent. And there was absolutely nothing that he could do about it. That right there in a nutshell is our spiritual condition as human beings. Paul says we are dead in our sins, that we are completely sort of separated from God. We are completely deserving of his judgment and his wrath and there's nothing that we can do about it there's absolutely nothing that we can do about it so we could read the scriptures with this sense of despair but as we read the scriptures we come to passages like Ephesians chapter 2 and in my opinion Ephesians chapter 2 may actually contain the two most important words in the entire Bible but God But God, there are no more powerful words in the entire Bible than those two. These two words means that there's something that is true right now that God is going to make untrue. These two words mean that there's something that is that God is going to change. And as we read on, we discover that what is, we discover that what is true is completely devastating. But what God changes is everything but God. Quite possibly the two most important words in the Bible, and here they are. So we have to ask ourselves, what is true right now, and what is it God is going to change? Well, here's what Paul says. What is true is this. You were dead in your sins. You were dead in your sins. But what does God change? Well, the change is this. God made you alive in Christ. You were dead, now you were alive. First, you were dead in your sins. Now I use the word were here 
Uh, if Not to be presumptuous, I use the word were, it's a past tense word, because Paul uses it in verse 1. And it's an important word because if you remember from earlier on in this sermon series, Paul is writing this letter to professing Christians. He's not writing this letter to unbelievers only, although there would have been unbelievers in the church when this was read, just like there are now. But he was writing this letter to what he called in verse 1, the saints in Ephesus. The saints in Ephesus. Now, what I want us to see there is is this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is probably one of the clearest and probably one of the plainest and probably one of the most basic, although it's incredibly powerful. I don't mean to say basic in the wrong sense. But it's an exposition of the gospel. The good news of your salvation in Jesus Christ. And when we think about the basics of the gospel from A to Z, from sin to salvation, we generally think about that in evangelistic terms. Oh, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. This is where I would go with my unbelieving next door neighbor to talk about the gospel. That is true. And we would think, oh, these are evangelistic words. And that is true. But then we have to remember, wait, who is Paul writing these words to? Saints. Who is Paul teaching the basics of the gospel to? Christians. Who needs the gospel? Everybody. These words are for you if you are not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is also true that these words are for you if you've been a believer your entire life and can never remember a day that you didn't worship Jesus. You never outgrow the gospel. You never outgrow this good news. You never get too mature for this. You never get too spiritual for this. You, just, you, you, you always are called to soak and to bask in it even as one who follows Jesus. That's part of the good news. But in order for us to bask in this good news, we have to first take a bit of a bath in the bad news. The bad news is that you're dead in your sins. You're not unconscious like you've been punched in the nose by Mike Tyson and you fell over for two minutes, but then you woke up. And you're not even mostly dead like the guy on The Princess Bride who had a little bit of life you know, left in him to be breathed into. You're dead. That's the word that Paul uses. I mean, dead, dead, spiritually speaking. And when you're dead, you can't wake up. When you're dead, you can't perform your own CPR. When you're dead, you can't just climb out of the grave. When you're dead, you're done. You can do nothing. That is us. Paul says, with respect to what he calls trespasses and sins. Uh, Theologians in the 17th century writing the Westminster Confession of Faith would call these sins of omission and commission. Sins of omission are not fully measuring up to the standards of God, like completely and totally loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Raise your hand if you've kept that. I'm, I'm raising our hands a lot today. Don't keep your hands down. We don't want to do that. Sins of commission are transgressing the law of God, like hating your neighbor or hating a person in your heart, in which case you've actually murdered them. We've all done these things, of course. And these are the things that we are dead in, according to Paul. That's the bad news. And this bad news has two aspects to it, the elements of sin and the consequences of sin. 
The elements of sin are three, and Paul goes and talks about them in this passage. And maybe you've heard this before if you've kind of ever read any theology in your life, because it's usually framed as, you know, our, our temptation, the, the elements of our temptation, the elements that cause us to sin, the elements that do battle in us, are the world, the flesh, and the devil. It was either Augustine or Aquinas or somebody else, I don't remember, who kind of fleshed that out and, 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 and explicated that um, to a, a large extent. But Paul, we're going to go in order of the way that he talks about these things in chapter 2, the world, the devil, and the flesh. The world is simply shorthand for the mass of accumulated disobedience to God and his purposes that becomes enculturated and then transmitted as part of our day-to-day lives in the world. I'm going to say that again. The world is shorthand for the mass of accumulated disobedience to God and his purposes that become enculturated and transmitted as part of our day-to-day lives in the world. You can think of the world as the lies that bombard you constantly simply because you live in Houston in 2021. Now, Here's something that I do know. Every generation who lives thinks that they're living in the worst generation ever, right? I do. This generation's terrible. But you know who else thought that? My parents. You know who else thought that? Their parents. You know who else thought that? Their parents. All the way back to Paul who wrote this in the first century about the world being full of sin, conglomerated, and attacking you from the outside. In our day and age, in one way that this is encapsulated is with this, this, this pervasive belief that the individual self is the center of the universe and that everything revolves around the individual and everything revolves around satisfying then our own desires. If you just open your ears and your eyes, you will see and hear this everywhere. In the music that you listen to, in the television that you watch, in the films that you watch, on your social media feeds, on billboards, in your school, at your work, it doesn't matter. You can't escape the world. You live in it. But there's more. You're also attacked by the devil. In verse 2, Paul calls the devil the prince of the power of the air, pointing out that there are unseen but very real forces of evil that are at work who seek to lead people away from the purposes and the promises of God. Now, the Bible does not go into a whole ton of detail about the devil, so it's all speculative when people really do that. But a couple of things are clear. First, the devil is real and personal. The devil in the Bible is not a metaphor. It's not a metaphor for general evil. The devil is real and personal, And the devil seeks to ravage the purposes and the people of God. But as the old infomercials in the middle of the night used to say, you know, when I couldn't sleep in the 80s, but wait, there's more. There's the world, there's the devil, but you are also attacked by your own flesh. Now, this is what Paul calls in verse 3 the sins of the flesh. Now you'll see that the world is from outside of you, tempting you from the outside the devil is from outside of you tempting you from outside but your flesh is you your flesh is internal there is a battle in your own heart that is corrupted that is leading you to rebel against God 
So they're not only external attacks, they're internal attacks simply by being human in this world. So basically everything is pushing against you to trap you and to confirm you in the deadness of your sins. It's bad. It's a very bleak situation. And it's a very real one. You know, thinking about something that we talked about a few weeks ago and, 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 and bringing that into where we are now, there's an application here for parents and there's an application here for grandparents or for aunts and uncles or people that, that, that love and, and, and seek to shepherd the hearts of, of children because this is the truth that Paul gets at in these verses. If the world and the devil... And even our own flesh are all at work seeking to lead us away from God. You cannot guard a human being from that. I mean, as parents, we want to keep our children from the world. That's understandable. But if you keep your children from parts of the world, they're still the devil. And if, you keep, and if the devil does not attack, they're still their own hearts. They're in there, you know, pumping and leading away from God. It's all there. We cannot, our children, we cannot... It's naive to believe that we can keep our children away from all evil. So, if total escape from the elements of sin is not possible, what does that mean in terms of parenting in light of the overwhelming envelope of brokenness and sin in which our children live and we're bringing them up? It means that we equip them. It it means that we equip them. And we equip them by helping them recognize the lies of the world and then arming them with biblical truth to counter those lies. You know, our Sunday school program for children or our student ministry, you know, those aren't things that we just do because it's like traditional to do those. And that's not just kind of childcare, you know, for... The, think about your children if your children are in Sunday school right now think about them or your students or youth group what they are doing is that they are hammering a sword they are forging a sword of biblical truth to be able to go out into the world and to fight the evil one and to fight the evil of this world your kitchen table is the war room right Your kitchen table is the place where you strategize together as a family, where you talk about the lies of this world, where you arm one another with prayer and the armor of God and the scriptures. You know, as our children are young, we have to do a lot of this for them, but as they grow and as they grow older, our call is to teach them to do it themselves. And that's the place, circling back to another parenting application a few weeks ago, that's the place where they mess up. And they blow it. And they make gigantic mistakes. Or small mistakes. And that gives you the opportunity to shepherd their hearts. That gives you an opportunity not simply to be embarrassed in like, of what they did externally. But to figure out what's going on in their hearts and where they led. And, you know, and what that really means that if you're a parent, your most important role, generally speaking, is just to pay attention. Right? To pay attention. To pay attention to the world, to know what the attacks are, to know what the lies are, and to know how to equip children to engage in those attacks. Taylor Leachman knows how to do that extraordinarily well. So does Shannon Holland, so does Willis Weatherford, so do their teams. And if you need any help with any of those things, that's what they are here for. Exactly that. To help guard and prepare and equip our children 
to live in this world without being overcome by this world. And so those are the elements of sin, the world, the devil, and our own flesh. Now, what is the consequence of sin? I say consequence in the singular on purpose. There are a lot of consequences to sin, uh, one of which is a natural consequence. You know, kind of like when your children, you're, you're, if you have a child that touches a hot stove, there's a natural consequence, right, that hurts. Uh, and one of the natural consequences of sin is if we set our heart on anything that is not God, that's going to hurt us eventually. That's going to disappoint us. That's going to m- mislead us. But that is not the consequence that Paul points us to in Ephesians 2. He points us to a consequence that nobody likes to talk about. But we're going to talk about it because it's here. And it's one word, and that word is wrath. W-R-A-T-H, wrath. Verse 3. You and I, along with the rest of mankind, were by nature children of wrath. Now, that is not how we like to think about God. I know. I don't like to think about God that way. I I understand it. I get it. We like to think about God as only kind. We like to think about God as only gracious. We like to think about God as only merciful. But actually, that's logically nonsensical in the sense that what makes sense of God's mercy and kindness if there is not also his holiness and his justice and his truth it is true biblically speaking that the wrath of God burns brightly against sin and rebellion and Paul says that is who you were by nature That is who you were by nature. Simply in the fact of being conceived and born into this world by nature, you were, like the rest of mankind, under the wrath of God. The Bible's clear on that point. We sin because we are sinners. We do not become sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. David wrote this exactly in Psalm 51. Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. It might be Tim Keller, the retired pastor of Redeemer Church in New York City, who said it best. He said one time in a sermon, we don't all turn out to be Adolf Hitler, but it's not for a lack of natural talent. That's getting at the point of Paul. God restrains us even in our sin. So that unbelievers can be amazingly generous and unbelievers can be amazingly kind and, and they can be you know, bold and brave and honest. That's because of God's common grace and his restraining work, keeping, it, keeping us and everything else from being as bad as it could possibly be. But it's bad news. You and I were dead in our sins. So what's the good news? Well, the good news is taking this into the present tense. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are alive in Christ. You were dead in your sins. You are alive in Christ. You have to remember those two words. But God, that is the major transition there in verse 4. Always remember those words. If you forget everything else, and you probably will, that's okay. These are only two words to remember. But God, but God made you alive in Christ. The grammar of this passage in verses 4 through 7 is important. I want to walk through it quickly 
because it talks to what it is that God does and when God did it and why God did it, how God did it, and to what end he did it. That sounds like a lot. It won't quite be as much as it just sounded like that right there. But the what that God did is this. God made you alive in Christ. This is in verse 5. And it's very important not to miss the weight of what this means. God is the actor. God is the actor. You and I are the recipients. The active verse points to God. The passive verses point, the passive verbs point back to us. All of this gets back to the incomparable beauty of the gospel. Now, when did God make you alive in Christ? Well, the obvious answer to that is when you did enough good things in your life to make him love you, right? But that isn't what it says. That isn't what it says. Verse 5, God made you alive in Christ when you were dead in your trespasses. Now think about that for a minute. This is not the same thing. A lot of, a lot of people talk about the image of the gospel as you're, you're drowning, you're flailing around in the middle of the ocean and God throws you a life preserver and it's Jesus and you grab a hold of it. But that is not what happened. You were already drowned and you're at the bottom of the ocean. Ezekiel the prophet says, to, God tells Ezekiel the prophet to preach to dry bones and God will animate them. And bring new life to them. You are spiritually speaking. Dead. Buried. Decomposed. Skeletal bones. And God makes you alive. In Christ. Why? Why did God make you alive in Christ? Well two reasons. First he is rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. Even though you and I have rebelled in him, we are justly deserving of his wrath. He was merciful to us first. He was merciful to us before we loved him, not after we loved him. Why and how could he do that? Because as the text says, he loved you with a great love. He loved you with a great love. Only the love of God could take someone who is actively and persistently in rebellion against him. And say, no, you're going to belong to me. You're going to belong to me. You're going to love me because I loved you first. So how did God make you alive in Christ? And here's the crux of the matter in many respects. And it's found in verse 5. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. Grace is an undeserved gift. It is being shown favor when you are actively acting in ways that should cause the opposite reaction. It is someone bearing a punishment that you deserve. It is by grace that you have been saved. And to what end? Where's all this going? Well, two things that Paul talks about here. First, your glorification. Glorification means, that's a theological word that means your perfect holiness and sinlessness in the new heavens and the new earth verse 6 you will be raised up with Jesus and seated with him in the heavenly places where you are headed and think about this because you struggle and I struggle in so many ways but you and I are going to be made like Jesus that's where all this is going unbelievable I can't even imagine that right you and I are going to be made like Jesus. 
in the new heavens and the new earth when he returns. And that points to something even greater, and it is the glory of Jesus. Our salvation being brought from death to life testifies to the great glory of God. It is a witness to the ages of his immeasurable and incomparable goodness and love. The fact that I can be standing here saying these things. Oh my, if y'all had only known me, you know, when I was a punky 14-year-old. It's testimony to the immeasurable love of God. And so is your life in Christ as well. To his glory. So what does all this mean? Well, one thing that this means, and I think one thing that we all need, is that you can rest. You can rest. I don't take anxiety lightly at all. I'm not naive about it, and I don't like to be reductionistic about it. But there's one thing that I do know about anxiety from talking to many of you and and others. And it is that if anxiety and worry has been a part of your story in your life, it has probably, almost certainly, magnified 10 to 100 fold in 2020. It has likely increased by multiples over the last year. I mean, just think about the last year, everything from a pandemic to a lockdown to um, very significant cultural struggles uh, over race and a lot of other issues uh, to a contentious election season to a contentious uh, election and election result and all of those things and their aftermath are still continuing it's like it's like there's a whole bunch of loose ends out there that aren't like tied up right it's super stressful and any person who has a pulse has seen the water level in their life probably rise And some of you came into 2020 with the water level already at the top. And if your water level of your anxiety and worry and stress is already at the top of your glass, when things like this happen, what happens? The glass spills over. And it's extremely difficult. In times like these, and this will not... There, there's, you know, there's, no, there's really no sense that this is like the worst time in world history, nor the last time something like really crazy is going to happen you know, in, our, in our lives or in our history. So there will be times like these. In times like these, it is imperative that Christ is your life. And I don't just mean that Christ is in your life. I really mean what I said, that Christ is your life. That he is everything to you. Why? Because where else can you put your hope right now? What else can bear the weight of it? Your physical health? That's not reliable. Sports? Your season was canceled, even if you were a senior. You know? Financial well-being? Unknown and swinging wildly. School? Crazy and disrupted. Politics? Embattled and unsettled. None of those things can save us. Only God in Christ by grace. And there you can rest because although all of these other things may be taken away and some of them have in your life over the last year, the one constant that, will, that was always there and will always be there is Christ. Remember, you will be seated with him in the heavenly places. 
that's an irrevocable promise. You will be glorified. God has seen to that. And God can do that. And God will do that through Jesus. For the man in Ohio who had the racist tattoo taking up the entirety of his back, he could do nothing about it. He couldn't reach back there and scrub it off. And even if he could, he didn't have anything to scrub it. He couldn't do it. It was there. It was indelible, so to speak. And he knew it was going to be there forever. A visible and a physical symbol of past hatred in his heart. Uh, Think about that. That every time he took his young son to the pool to go swimming, he'd have to wear a shirt. You know? Or he'd try to hide it from him. Or what would the shame and the pain be as he saw that in his father's life. But he couldn't do anything about it. He couldn't fix it. But there was somebody who could. A tattoo artist in Ohio who offers free tattoo removal or alteration to anybody who would like to either remove or alter racist or gang-related tattoos. That they have these marks on their bodies that they no longer want to identify them. He will either take it off or change it. Now, this man's tattoo was way too large to remove. It was like taking up the entirety of his back. So this artist got to work, and over the course of multiple sessions for free, he transformed this picture of a hooded Klansman standing in front of a burning cross into a soaring eagle. And if you look at the picture, there is no hint, zero hint. You could never guess that it was ever anything but that. The transformation was complete. But God, being dead in your sins is the beginning of the story, but it is not the end of the story. There is transformation through Christ. Life in him now, life in him into eternity. Trusting in him, the transformation is complete. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your finished work on the cross that gives us new life and new hope, even when this life is really hard and even where it feels like hope is hard to find. We pray that we would lean into that. Jesus, be our lives. Be our lives, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.